coming up, we'll cut ourselves a huge slice of Brexit cake and eat all of it. Plus, we'll ask if UKIP's third leader in three months will last any longer than his predecessor. To those who do not want to unify and want to continue fighting the battles of the past, then I'm afraid that your time in UKIP is coming to an end. Hello, Paul Osborne here, inviting you to cast your mind back to the spring and that really, really enjoyable and inspiring EU referendum campaign. At the time, Boris Johnson was just a jobbing former mayor, pretending to be a rabid anti-European for personal political gain. And he was asked how Britain could keep all of the free trade benefits of EU membership without any of that pesky free movement that so many people seem to dislike. His response that he was pro-having cake and pro-eating it as well. Now fast forward almost six months and Boris is Foreign Secretary and a cake-based strategy may be the heart of the government's plan for Brexit. At least if scribbled notes on a piece of paper are anything to judge by, which normally they are almost certainly not. Incidentally, if you are a minister or official and you are walking along Downing Street why not try putting your notes inside a folder? Or maybe just having a note on the outside of all of them that says in big bold letters, nothing to see here, or everything is fine. It's further evidence of the information vacuum that surrounds our departure from the EU, that a sentence written by an aide to a Conservative MP has been widely interpreted as a valuable leak of that previously secret Brexit plan. Well, Robert Meakin joins me. He hasn't seen the plan either. First things first, I mean, this isn't an accidental revelation of the government's strategy. The government's strategy is not scribbled down an A4 jotter by a junior aide. I think that's probably too organised. Um, I'm still not convinced there is a strategy. But to be fair, having your cake and eating it kind of fits in with a lot of what we've heard from ministers who just still seem to think all the other EU nations will just let us have the good bits and none of the bits that make voters angry. Yes, I think that's fair to say. Uh, There's a sense, I feel, that we're still improvising, rather, to put it very politely in terms of the government and its approach uh, to Brexit. Uh, Having your cake and eating it is a a very nice idea, but, of of course, uh, rather impractical when it comes to the devil in the detail. I would say right now that that the feeling is that Theresa May is still cautiously trying to steer her way through what is a very tangled web and I don't think is herself entirely clear what the outcome is going to be. Now reports this week suggest that Angela Merkel uh, dismissed Theresa May's offer of a bilateral deal with Germany that would have protected the rights of British and German citizens post-Brexit and that uh, a similar issue was raised when the Polish Prime Minister came to the UK and was brushed off in a similar fashion. Here's how this issue was raised at Prime Minister's Questions this week by the former Tory Minister Peter Lilly. Does she therefore share my disappointment that Mr Juncker, in response to a letter from 80 members of this House... Uh, to resolve this issue speedily has intransigently put EU processes ahead of common humanity. 
I think it is right that we want to give reassurance to British citizens living in the EU and to EU citizens living here in the UK. Uh, but I think the reaction that we've seen shows why it was absolutely right for us not to do what the Labour Party wanted us to do, which was simply to give away the uh, guarantee for rights of EU citizens here in the UK, because as we've seen, that would have left UK citizens in Europe high and dry. It strikes me, Robert, that this gets it the wrong way round. Surely it's the UK's responsibility as the one nation out of 28 that is leaving the EU to offer to protect the rights of EU citizens in Britain rather than demanding that each country individually offer to protect the rights of British citizens before the negotiations start. Considering the Polish Prime Minister might well think, with perhaps some justification, that the 900,000 or so Poles living in the UK are kind of being held to ransom at the moment to try and get a good deal, you can understand why she might not be that keen at being offered something on the sidelines. Well, absolutely. I mean, we we have just given our European partners a real bloody nose, uh, courtesy of the vote, courtesy of the referendum vote. So... I think, you know, uh, the, the wounds are still, you know, a, a pretty sore. And I think us, us going and making these sort of demands just a few months on, we're just not in a strong position just to, to, to ask for such things. And I don't think it comes as any surprise that we're being told to bugger off from the continent presently. Now, you wonder if this, this no information strategy that Theresa May does appear to have adopted is sustainable until March, which is when she wants to trigger Article 50. Because I think that's the root of why we see a a bit of paper with something scribbled on it and we all jump on it and go, well, that must be the plan. That must be the plan. It's all about cake. And we're going to have more of this between now and March if she doesn't reveal something. Yeah, it's really tricky. And of course, the legal ruling over Article 50 sort of convoluted things, the prime minister all the more, you know, now now it's going to be again an extensive source of an extensive parliamentary debate. As I say, it, it, it's very difficult for the Prime Minister. She's in a very unenviable position presently to know quite where she's going to steer the path through to. It, it, it's a very difficult time for her. Well, indeed, next week the Supreme Court will hear that government appeal on the High Court judgment on Article 50 that said that MPs, not the Prime Minister, should have the final say in whether or not to trigger it. Now, I've spoken to a couple of people who know, you know a lot more about constitutional law than I do. They seem to think it's pretty clear cut that the government is quite likely to lose this appeal and that probably government legal advisers have told the prime minister that. In which case, if that happens, the March deadline for Article 50 is kind of out of the window because they'd have to get some kind of bill or legislation through Parliament before they could do it. Now, the EU leaders are starting to get a bit a bit tired of the dithering, I suspect. Yeah, because, I mean, do I mean, you see it from their point of view? There, there's a vote in the summer, a, a shock result, it was considered at the time. We're leaving the European Union. We now have what is an extremely convoluted process ahead of us and a legal ruling that's undermined, you know, a good chunk of the short term plan. So we're really not in a great position to be negotiating with our European partners presently because we don't quite know what to negotiate with. And the EU leader's attitude is, you know, if you want all of this, if you want guarantees on uh, the the rights to work and reside for for Britons living in other EU countries, if you want to negotiate some sort of trade access, you know, the way you do that is you trigger Article 50 and you start the negotiating process. Theresa May uses this idea of saying, you know, if, if I wanted to buy a car, I wouldn't go in and say to the guy selling the car, look, I've got £15,000 in my back pocket and I'm going to offer you eight. 
because he's not he's going to hold out for the 15. So I'm not going to go in and say, this is what I want. This is what I want. But you don't ring up the car dealer six months in advance and ask him if he wouldn't mind giving you half the car now. And you'll talk about it when you come in to buy it in six months time. It does. Yeah, it, it, it strikes you as a whiff of panic. And of course, if she could have got that sort of assurance, which now, of course, seems like it was always highly unlikely. If she could have got some sort of assurance, she could have come back to the country with something, with some reassuring noise, say, look, I've guaranteed this for us at least. This is a good starting point. I do wonder if it was just chancing your arm and thinking, you know, would Germany relent? Would Germany do us a favour? Obviously, they haven't. Europe generally has a huge amount to worry about. This idea that the EU has nothing better to do than sit around and wait for Britain to, to move on with Brexit... This coming weekend, Austria could elect a far-right head of state. Italy's prime minister has said he will resign if he loses a constitutional referendum. The head of Germany's intelligence service has said that Russia may try to interfere in that presidential election. France could elect a fascist as president next year. It's not as if Britain is the only thing that they're thinking about over there. No, indeed. And we can lose sight of that. Of course we can from this side of the channel. As you say, there's so, there's so much at stake politically on the continent presently. You mentioned France, obviously Germany. So much could change in a fairly dramatic way pretty soon. So they, they, there's, they've got enough on their plate over there. So the fact that we're sort of still the troublesome cousin, still making all sorts of noises, having already said we're leaving home, is, is, isn't is always going to be at the top of their priorities. Now, all of this, of course, would be a huge problem for the government if the opposition stood poised, ready to pounce on the vast unanswered questions that surround the biggest political issue of our times. Still, you can't have everything, can you? Of course, the next Brexit shock could actually come a lot sooner than we may think, depending on the Richmond Park by-election. Full disclosure, we are recording this sometime before the result of that by-election is known. Now, given our frankly shameful track record in predictions over the last 18 months... Cover cover, cover our tracks here, yeah. (laughs) We're we're, we're just going to sit this one out, to be honest with you, listeners. We're not not going to predict it. So you insert in your head, if you're listening after Thursday night, insert now in the gap that I'm going to leave the result of the Richmond Park by-election. In summary, though, if Zach Goldsmith wins back his seat, then basically almost nothing will happen as a consequence. If the Liberal Democrats manage to snatch the seat, we will probably spend most of the next podcast talking about that. Now, as we record this latest podcast, uh, Paul Nuttall has been the leader of UKIP for four days. It's a good, solid start, and there's every reason to believe that he will surpass the long service of his predecessor, Diane James, who didn't quite make it to the three-week mark. And Mr Nuttall won nearly two-thirds of the votes in the party's leadership contest, though, to be honest, not that many votes, because the total was only around 14,000. But he now leads the People's Army and has told one of the most bitterly divided groups you can imagine that now is the time to unify against their common enemy, Stephen Wolf. <laughs> no, sorry, no, that's not the right message. There will be one theme, unity, because only unity breeds success. People do not vote, join or donate to divided parties. So those within the party who want to come together and unite, I say, we have a great and successful future. To those who do not want to unify and want to continue fighting the battles of the past, then I'm afraid that your time in UKIP is coming to an end. So, Robert, it's time to unite. It's time for UKIP to come together as one and put the divisions of the past behind them. The only problem is 
that since the referendum, UKIP's gone a bit people's front of Judea. It has. And it's really, really hard to call quite what is going to happen to this party because they've been, you know, at the forefront of the debate in recent years, courtesy of one Nigel Farage. We all know about his role in the referendum. But the, the, it, it, it's, it's been a bad slapstick comedy in, in, in recent months. Uh, now that they have uh, Paul Nuttall as leader, I mean, the optimists in UKIP would now say, well, now we've got this northern down-to-earth leader. We're going to target those vulnerable northern Labour seats because people don't relate to those the Islington-based Labour establishment anymore. Uh, th- this is the way forward. That's one possibility. The other possibility, of course, is, where, is that without Farage, they're going to they're going to fall away from relevance. They're going to really struggle over the uh, coming months and years. Right now, we, we we can't say we know. We don't know. I mean, the, the, the latest opinion poll doesn't make that discouraging uh, viewing for, for UKIP, to be honest. Still comfortably ahead of the Liberal Democrats. No, that's not necessarily too hard presently, but they haven't completely collapsed. But how are they going to do when it comes to council elections, European elections, the general election? Very difficult to say right now if this party is really going forward. It does come back to that idea of what the point of UKIP is after Brexit. I mean, he does seem to be one of the few figures at the top of the party who is interested in taking them past just sort of ranting about Europe. Of course, the thing about UKIP, anyone who tries to be a leading figure in UKIP, is you've got to get out from Nigel Farage's shadow. And it's all very well saying, oh, he's not the leader anymore. But he appears to be on his way to being Donald Trump's house elf or something, which <laughs> which is not absolutely a form of shy public retirement. No, no Nigel Farage isn't, isn't, doesn't strike us as the sort of man who's going to... Uh, uh, fall away from the limelight anytime soon. I mean, it's been whatever you think of him politically or personally, he is a remarkable political creature of our time. I mean, you just only have to look at the last couple of years. It's because of Farage, essentially, that David Cameron was forced, really, to hold a referendum in the first place. It's a Farage that uh, Cameron subsequently had to stand down as Prime Minister only a year after winning a general election. Farage is then the only British politician who who goes over to the, the across the Atlantic to support Donald Trump. And I guess what? And Donald Trump goes and wins the election. The man is on a remarkable wave presently. One thing I think that Paul Nuttall may find difficult is it's all very well for him saying we've got to move past now just obsessing on Europe. We've got to talk about the concerns of these working class voters who feel they've been left behind. I'm just not sure that the rest of his party is, is necessarily ready to follow him in that way. So some of them do seem kind of as obsessed as they were, but just now obsessed with this notion that the establishment, by which they don't just mean the other political parties, is somehow going to find a way to weasel out of Brexit. I had a curious Twitter spat with Douglas Carswell um, earlier in November. Ooh, you name-dropper, Paul. Name-dropper. I know. (laughs) I move in all the higher circles. And um, he was convinced that the BBC was going to ignore that story about Google announcing a big investment in the UK because it was good news post-Brexit. He made his point on Twitter by linking to a BBC News website article about it. So I just pointed out that that kind of undermined his argument that the BBC was cruelly ignoring the story. And he replied at 10 to 6 to say, oh, no, I meant the television news. So wait 10 minutes and the six o'clock news starts and it's the second story. So I I just pointed out again, you know, politely, 
he may want to reconsider his preemptive complaint, given that they just featured it as a major story. He then turned this into a victory and said, well, it's good to see the BBC finally, uh, finally doing its job. And uh, I mean, too much news coverage consists of journalists talking to each other or experts or something. Now, look, I'm a geek. This kind of stuff is fascinating. I'm just not convinced A, that the ordinary voters of Clacton necessarily thought that's why they sent him to Westminster. And B, I think that probably represents a fairly common attitude among people within UKIP. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest, for a long time we spoke of the disaffected Tories, the the right wing of the party drifting out to UKIP. And you think of places like Clacton, and you do imagine that sort of electorate. It's a different ballgame altogether talking about trying to knock down doors in, you know, the north, the north and the Midlands of England with you know, the traditional Labour working class vote there. And you do think, I mean, the, the momentum and excitement for the UKIP movement was so for so long based on you know, getting us out of the European Union. That was that was the top of the hill for these peoples. As you say, quite what their identity is now is very questionable. And let's be honest, as you, you know, <laughs> Does that party as a unit really have the fighting machine discipline to come under one sort of direction, the sort of direction that Nuttall wants to take them in? You'd have to say right now, no, it does not. By the way, my favourite fact about Paul Nuttall is something that actually is not a fact at all. Two years ago, he had to deny an allegation that he had been the original bungle from Rainbow. This appeared on his Wikipedia page, but he then he then came up with a cast iron alibi. He couldn't possibly have been the original bungle from Rainbow because the program had started before he was born. But it's obviously nonsense. Bungle is a slow witted, childlike creature who is perpetually confused at the events that surround him. And Paul Nuttall is the leader of UKIP. <laughs> uh, but it, it did set me wondering if, if there are any other politicians who might be confused for children's television characters, because I always thought Jeffrey Howe was a little bit like Bagpuss, kind of quite sleepy, only really half awake. Yeah, yes, I think we're continuing the 1970s theme here. Yes, I would, I would agree with that. I think Bagpuss is a good one for Howe. And Nigel Farage, I see as a bit like Basil Brush. The outfit, the raucous laughter... Yeah, I, I think I, I would. I would imagine that Basil himself could be could have been a UKIP supporter. I mean, I don't want to presume what Basil Brush's political allegiances are, stroke were, but yeah, I, I think uh, Basil Brush is a fair description of Farage. I think, yeah, I think that works. Uh, that that is that is pretty much it for now. But but just before we go, in case you happen to be in search of further entertainment, somewhat improbably, I was invited onto another podcast uh, last week as a guest because obviously my insight and analysis is worth so much. So if you want to hear me ranting about the Autumn Statement or Fidel Castro, and and heavens, who wouldn't? um, If you head over to uh, rightdishonourable.com, you can can listen to that. It's not just me, obviously, ranting. It's other people asking me questions and me ranting. I mean, otherwise that would be be slightly weird. Uh, Next time, Europe may well have been plunged into another crisis or two. So not absolutely different from this time, to be honest. But this time, it's probably not going to be our fault. Uh, In the meantime, do get in touch on Twitter, at Paul Osborne. But for now, thanks to Robert. Thanks to you for listening. And goodbye. Goodbye.